kill you. Yeah, what's wrong with the beer we got? Ladies and gentlemen, uh, and welcome to another edition of Auntie Nanny, um, the show filled with fun. Uh, <laughs> with me tonight is the very best producer that money can't buy, which is good because I'm still not paying him. Very, how are you tonight, Very? I'm good. Okay. A little stuffy, getting over a cold, but other than that, fine. Yeah, it's the weather's horrible here, um, so don't be surprised if I start sounding very Dalek-like at some point. Uh, and don't be alarmed by it. It's just thunderstorms going that's by. A, that's okay. We've got, we've got a sorry for a villain. Going to be the new prime minister. So, yeah. <laughs> Theresa May is a horrible human being. I can't yes. believe that happened. Anti-gay, um, anti, well, anti just about everything apart from conservative. <laughs> I don't even think you can call her conservative. I mean, she, she gives conservatives a bad name. They're very, she's very well, controlling. And, as and, I keep describing her. It's a Margaret Thatcher wannabe without the intelligence or charisma. Ah, right then. <laughs> <laughs> she, she sounds lovely and she looks even more charming in the photo you showed me earlier. Um, <laughs> up first this evening, we're going to have the CASA update um, just because Alex is really busy. And it would be nice to get uh, an update from the horse's mouth. Right, I'm just gonna okay. grab him. All right. Hey, Alex. Good Hello. evening, Alex. Good evening. Good, good evening, and welcome to the CASA update for the week of 7 11 2016. How are you this evening? Good. Good. I'm still in Canada. Ah, well, uh, Blame Canada? No, I'm kidding. Uh, uh, only uh, it's only funny if you're a South Park fan, I guess. Um, so I see we've released a couple calls to action. Um, yes, um, we put out. Sorry, I was in the middle of doing something, and my computer's now weird. So I'm sorry. Um, no, it's okay. It was my fault for getting onto something before coming on the air um <clears throat> so on uh saturday actually we got word about this on friday but i didn't get to it until late 
on Friday, so we put it out Saturday morning. Um, there is a call to action for Allegheny County in, uh, that's, that's Western Pennsylvania. Um, that's, that Pittsburgh is actually in Allegheny County. Um, there is the uh, Allegheny County Department of Health, I believe, and the Board of Health are sort of getting together and um, they're going to be considering an indoor use ban um, that would subject vaping to the same uh, prohibition on smoking. Um, so this is for July 13th and um, we got all this information from Bill Godshaw, uh, okay. by the way, Smoke Free Pennsylvania. Um, so, uh, and this is, uh, I forget when the meeting occurred, but, uh, there was kind of a, a news article about this, I guess a couple of months ago, maybe, maybe back in April. Um, the, uh, uh, one of them, the board of health or the department of health brought this ordinance to the other and said, Hey, let's, let's do this and, and check it out and see if it's legal and all that. So, um, they are moving on that, and uh, the meeting is this Wednesday, July 13th at 1230, the Allegheny, De Allegheny County Health Department Conference Room in Pittsburgh. All the address information is on our site, and uh, we also have uh, went ahead and did kind of a, one of the pre-written email campaigns that we do normally for state stuff um, because we have a few emails for people from uh, the Board of Health and uh, the Allegheny County Health Department. That's a mouthful for some reason. Uh, so you can participate in that call to action as well as uh, refer to the talking points. These are our kind of standard talking points that we provide for people dealing with indoor use bans um, and uh, use these to kind of develop your three minute. Only three minutes. You have three minutes. That's it. Three minutes to speak. Um, and uh, if you do sign up to speak, please reach out to Bill Godshall and let him know that you're coming. Um, I'm sure that he would like to arrange for people to meet in a certain area and possibly go over some um, some helpful pointers for uh, presenting. Sure. Um, so, and and I, I don't think we can actually say this enough. Uh, please dress appropriately if you do plan to attend. Uh, nice shirts, um, even if you have a clean pair of jeans that tends to look better um, when you are wearing a button-down shirt that is tucked in and all that fancy stuff. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, it's true. Yeah. Okay. Um, so that's the 13th. That's in two days. Yes. Definitely. Um, Go ahead. And also, uh, while we're on the topic of Pennsylvania, um, sure. as far as I know... The state has not finalized the uh, uh, the f the funding side of the state budget. Uh, they got the appropriations done, but they haven't done the how we're going to pay for it part. Um, so that is still an issue. Uh, so while you're looking, as if, if you're a resident of Pennsylvania, while you're looking at this Allegheny County thing, definitely scroll down and look at the. 40% wholesale tax uh, call to action because that is still active. Yeah. Ouch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so 
has anything new and exciting been going on? <laughs> Besides, I see all these shops in Utah being um, told they're not allowed to sell unless it's face to face. Um, I, you know, I, <laughs> I haven't really looked into this too much, other than you know to see that the Utah Smoke Free Association posted on their blog pretty clearly that online sales in Utah are now Man. against against the law um, and that's even you know sometimes this will allow I, I think in other states there have been exemptions where like you know a, a, an in-state retailer can ship to someone else in the state sure. um, but none of that exists uh, in Utah so Wow. <laughs> Just straight up online sales in Utah are against the law. Um, and, and that's, that's just the way it is. Um, so yeah, I mean, Utah and Indiana both last week, you know, sort of experiencing a shutdown in, yeah. uh, you know, how business can be done. You know, I, I found it really ironic that, uh, NATO, the, the, uh, convenience store people said that, oh no, no, they were backtracking on this the same time i was seeing all of these shops boarded up and shuttered up and photos of them all over the place i'm going these guys really need to get their facts straight this is uh uh you're talking about indiana yeah i'm talking about indiana yeah yeah it's uh yeah in indiana it continues to be somewhat confusing uh even for the people who are you know relatively and highly competent that had been following this thing from the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I know I, I saw a post earlier, I haven't followed up with it, uh, mm -hmm. but it looks like Evan McMahon from uh, Hoosier Vapors was attending something at a federal courthouse today. Uh, I believe that was in relation to the Good Cat LLC lawsuit. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm not sure, don't quote me on that. Uh, so there should be some news coming out of Indiana shortly regarding that. Um, but yeah, you know, this whole thing was, uh, <laughs> you know, I guess the grocers association or somebody had kind of talked to the ATC, which I believe is like the alcohol and tobacco commission, right. um, about this, you know, language in the, um, in the law, right. That was, it, it, people were interpreting this to be a. Uh, kind of a 60, 60 day sell through period. Right. And there's not, and, and it's not, it's just, it's not there or it's, it might be in the code, but the, the ATC has the option to kind of enforce things by the law, by the something. I, I really don't understand it, but you know, right. July one, as far as I understand, um, they were starting to enforce things. Um, and there's, you know, there's some other sort of inter, um, business you know nonsense going on people are yeah. sort of calling on their competitors and ratting them out um which in, it, i mean <laughs> honestly <laughs> honestly the law sort of encourages that to some extent um because if you're selling liquid that's not manufactured by one of the six approved manufacturers yeah. um those manufacturers that have their license can actually come after you and the people that manufacture the e-liquid. I, I might might be wrong on, on one of those parts, but 
um, they, they can sue for damages basically. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty nuts. So, um, anyway, I, at some point last week, we were expecting some good news out of Indiana. Um, I, I don't exactly know if we got it. Um, I have to look through my notes here. Um, I, I think that there's some interesting stuff that'll be happening on appeal. Um, yeah, and, and it's so it's not over in Indiana. Um, you know, first of all, the lawsuit is still kind of happening lawsuits actually is still kind of happening <laughs> yeah. and um you know if anybody I, I was actually on kevin skipper's uh show um on uh friday mm -hmm. uh the the vcc live uh right. update that he does in the afternoon and uh, we were talking about indiana and i and i i i just have to say this you know if, if we're going to talk about you know sure. next next steps um, mm -hmm. A lot of the damage in Indiana has already been done or has been set in motion. Um, there are a lot of small independent shop owners out there that, you know, I mean, even people who are planning to be compliant, you know, there are delays in shipments because, you know, you're taking this massive industry and, and squeezing it down to six manufacturers. Um, and, and it doesn't, you know, it, I, I don't think anybody has really had enough time to make adjustments for this transition. Um, so anyway, you know, I want to stop short of giving excuses, but, um, you know, the, the, the practical reality of this is that people are going to have to, people are shutting down their businesses. I think it, it's not as widespread as we might believe a lot of the photos that we saw, uh, that came out early last week were, you know, people just have to clean out their shelves. Right. Um, some people are getting product in that they can sell, um, but for the most part, people had to clean off their shelves to make sure that they were not displaying non-compliant product. Right. <clears throat> um, you know, but they can still, there were, there were other things that they could still sell, so it wasn't like they were completely boarded up. However, even if you've got assurances from your manufacturers that like in 30 days or 45 days or 90 days or 60 days, whatever it is, that you're going to start getting shipments from them, that's a long time to wait. I mean, oh, yeah. your rent doesn't stop needing to be paid. Your employees don't stop needing paychecks. It, yeah. There's, you know, the electric bill still needs to get paid. You yeah. have to eat. So, you know... It's a it's a pretty sticky situation for a lot of people, and I have nothing but sympathy for them. And I, you know, not that that solves the problem, but no. um, so you know, even though that you know, sitting in a different state, mm -hmm. and actually, I'm, right now I'm literally in a different country, but um, <laughs> uh, you know, sitting in a completely different part of the country, part of the world, and looking at the situation, I can sit here and comfortably say. Oh yeah, when 2017 comes around, we're going to be, you know, it sounds like lawmakers are there's, you know, they're going to have these pictures sitting on their desks and they're going to have they're going to be compelled to revisit the, the law. Um, <laughs> but, you know, by then lots of people are going to be out of business and okay. will have already suffered the consequences of their yeah. uh, lack of vision. So I've already seen a couple of people that I know used to work in Indiana and vape shops talking about being unemployed, you know, yeah. it's sad. 
that's really that's just terrible and the thing i think that kills me is i'm reading these articles and these lawmakers are going well that wasn't what we intended yes but it's what happened and you were told that was going to happen and you waved it off and you ignored it yeah this 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 shouldn't shouldn't be a surprise you know any lawmaker at this point in indiana that says oh i'm surprised that this is what is happening um, they're saying that because they have to, because they have to pretend that they didn't know what was going on. They were told, they yeah. were told repeatedly by, yes. by, by folks who have a lot of experience, not just in this industry, but, uh, generally when dealing with, with, with issues like these. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, there's, there's really just no excuse. I agree. <sighs> <laughs> yeah. There's so much more you could say, but. It, it doesn't really undo the damage. Yeah. Um, so, is that it for this week, Alex? Do you think? Um. Probably. I'm, I'm sitting here thinking about. Uh, I I, uh, I might be traveling next week, but it, it my 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 schedule is about to get really hectic. So, uh, <laughs> that's kind of at least something else to to mention that uh, there are still events going on. Um, and I know that I've heard from some other, from people that, you know, events that we're attending, right. um, they're actually having a lot of, uh, businesses back out oh, wow. of, uh, the, the trade shows I, for whatever reason. I mean, you know, I understand that, that some people feel that their money is better spent in other places and that's perfectly fine. Um, but, uh, you know, for others, I, I think that, uh, you know, I don't know, it's, it's, it's just a, yeah it's not my place really to comment. I just thought it's worth mentioning that, you know, we're, you know, the deeming regulations aren't even effective yet and we're already starting to feel and see the impact. Um, we're, we're a little less than a month away from the effective date and, uh, people are starting to freak out a bit and, and trying to, you know, they're either planning their exit strategy or they're, you know, conserving their money and, and, and shifting gears a little bit. Um, so I, you know, I don't really, I don't know, you know, a dollar for dollar kind of, you know, what the value is of, of some of these companies going to trade shows practically every weekend or even once a month. Um, you know, I just, I don't have those numbers. I, I've never attended a trade show as a business owner, so I don't know what your value is there. But, um, uh, yeah, it, it's, uh, it, it's, it's bad enough that, you know, people are backing out of agreements now, um, so anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, all that just, uh, you know, that's just, that's life. Um, yeah. but, uh, so coming up, uh, we will be in, uh, I believe VCC in Pittsburgh is our next appearance. Mm -hmm. Um, and then let me just open up my calendar here. <clears throat> so VCC Pittsburgh, that is July 23rd and 24th at the David Lawrence uh, convention center in beautiful downtown Pittsburgh. It is actually quite nice. Um, and then, uh, the last weekend in July, the 29th to the 30th, I'm going to be in Tacoma, Washington, uh, attending a couple of, um, kind of advocacy night get together things at some, some local shops there. Um, I believe, uh, actually I probably shouldn't mention, I don't, oh wait, it's in our newsletter, so it doesn't matter. Uh, <laughs> It's 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 at Obsidian Vapor in in Tacoma, Washington. Is at least one of one of them I know of. Uh, I think that's the kind of open to consumers thing. 
Um, and uh, I'm actually really looking forward to meeting people in Washington State. We haven't had a whole lot of contact with them traditionally. Um, and for those that don't know, if you're new to the podcast or new to CASA in general, um, Washington State is one of those places where uh, people got together, it seems, early and got organized. And so uh, the need for national organizations to come in and, and either, you know, we've, we've played kind of an assisting role uh, if, if needed, uh, but for the most part, um, WAVAPE and uh, the Pink Lung Brigade have been doing um, a pretty stellar job. And they managed to get a pretty decent piece of legislation passed this year um, that uh, the only thing that I had an issue with was uh, some labeling requirement, but uh, there's a provision in there that sunsets that once the federal law kicks in. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I, I think I missed that in my initial assessment. It doesn't matter though because they, they did the work, they got it passed, and um, congratulations. So, um, yeah, looking forward to meeting those people and, and, uh, building some relationships there. Uh, and then in August, the first weekend, I will be in Deadwood, South Dakota. Uh, and, uh, Greg Conley will also be out there. Um, part of the reason for our visit is because number one, we were invited and they're helping bring us out. Uh, number two, um, we have not had a whole lot going on in South Dakota, North Dakota. Um, and uh, we really need to get out there and meet some people. So if you're in that area, um, which is generally a large and spread out area, um, please come down and say hi. And, and I mean, if you're listening to this podcast and you live in South Dakota or North Dakota, just go ahead and join CASA because there's a chance that we're going to be sending something out um, to give you information about a, I believe, potential ballot initiative in North Dakota uh, that would enact a tax on vapor products. Um, so, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I have never actually spent time in South Dakota. Um, apparently, this is like in the middle of bike week or oh. whatever. And is it, is it Sturgis, South Dakota? Uh, maybe. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. I'm not I've a. Motor, I'm not a motorcycle guy, so I don't know. Um, um, but, I'm married uh, to one, but we've never <laughs> been to. We've never been to the Dakotas, so. <laughs> so yeah, apparently that's happening. It it should be pretty interesting, um, and then also that weekend, uh, Saturday the sixth, mm -hmm. uh, a billion lives is premiering in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Yes. Um, which is uh, and I you know. I'm going to be in South Dakota, but this awesome movie is going to be playing in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So yeah. um, I believe, uh, I know Kristen, Kristen Noel Marsh is from Wisconsin, so I believe she is going to be attending. Mm -hmm. uh, I think Julie is working it so she can be there. I can't remember. Um, but we're trying to get some Kassaw people there. Um, and certainly there will be some other opportunities for this to, for us to be at the premiere of this movie in the United States and we are all we are all very excited about this and looking forward right. to it so exactly yeah so i guess that's it thank you that that is pretty much it um okay. i uh i do feel like i'm leaving something i always feel like i'm leaving something out and i apologize well yeah you know the problem is neither of us are psychic so we don't know what's going to pop up between now and when we say goodbye yeah um 
because things seem to happen that quickly. But thank you for coming on and, and thank you for everything you do for us. And um, enjoy your time in Canada with your lovely wife. I will. Thank you very much. Thank you. Have a great evening. You too. Okay, so was that me staticky or is that like country to country staticky? It was Alex who's coming okay. from Alex. Thank it sounded God. like there's a broadcast interfering with his signal. Yeah, <laughs> well, no surprise there. But, you know, hey, actually got a Casa update done that wasn't by me. So it <laughs> sound like a news broadcast. So, okay. Um, where to start? dart I look at the news lately and I'm shuddering uh, here's a fun one the TSA wants to put checkpoints in airport parking lots um, in a recent interview with Fox News's Greta Van Susteren I, I don't watch Fox News but I didn't know that that went mostly unnoticed former TSA chief John Pistole suggested that the next phase of airport security may involve new checkpoints outside the terminal. The former administrator of the Transportation Security Administration said federal officials and airport representatives are looking into implementing minimal screening procedures at airport parking lots as another step to enhance security. There is going to be a line someplace. There is going to be a queue of people that are going through some type of security, Pistol said. LAX and some other airports on random basis will set up police control for traffic coming into the terminals. But you still get a lineup of cars there, so there's always going to be some place that will be vulnerable as a soft target. Pistol's language is a little vague, so it's not clear whether he's describing screening in the parking lot or just outside an airport's entrance doors. The former would be deeply inconvenient. Take all of the grossness of the current TSA's procedures and then put it out in the summer heat or winter cold. Will we seriously be asked to take our coats off outside? And if it's in a semi-enclosed garage, add the suffocating smell of exhaust. The latter idea is even worse, though, as it adds a whole new level of privacy invasion. In that case, not only would airline passengers be subject to screening, but people who aren't even flying would potentially be searched as well. No one should have to deal with the TSA just to make an airport run. But the bigger issue here isn't the inconvenience or the scope of the proposal. It's that it just won't work. We know this because it's been proven ineffective at the Istanbul Atarak airport site of last week's horrifying attack by men armed with bombs and guns. Atarak had already had pre-airport screening similar to what Pristol described as illustrated in a pointed infographic in the New York Times. Um, extra layers of security didn't help in Turkey and they won't help here either. The fact that no amount of invasive, unconstitutional assaults on our privacy in the name of security will ever be able to stop every would-be terrorist. There will always be a new way to slip past security or MacGyver a weapon from items purchased after the checkpoint. And even if we manage to make airports 100% safe, 100% of the time, though again that's impossible, terrorists would probably just switch to shopping malls or one of the millions of other public spaces where deplorable violence could wreak havoc. Recklessly reacting to every new terrorist threat with yet another layer of security is expensive, foolhardy, and wrong. Sure, we could just put TSA screeners in parking lots and we could let them rifle through our cars while we pick up our families at the airports and we could let them set up shop in malls or grocery stores or stadiums or wherever. 
any other place anyone might conceivably imagine a strike occurring, we could, but terrorist attacks would happen anyway because giving up these basic liberties is not what keeps us safe. You look, statistically speaking, your chances of getting struck by lightning are much higher than your chances of being attacked by a terrorist. So, yeah. just food for thought. Also, right. It's also designed down to the design of airports. Mm -hmm. um, sure. They're designed with traffic flow in mind, as in people. So, yeah, not security. Mm -hmm. If you want a secure airport, it's good, but you've got to design it as a secure airport. Well, I mean, and yeah, if you want a secure airport, anybody going into the terminal building mm -hmm. should be getting searched. Search. Staff, customers, everybody. Sure. I mean, but you have that, to design it that way, not retrofit. Israel. Israel. <laughs> Look oh, yeah. at the airports in Israel. You really want to stop terrorism. It's really a massive threat where you are. You do it the way Israel does it. You yeah. go into a room and everybody's luggage has to be searched. And then you yep. go into another room and everybody looks you over. And they pick people out based on, <clears throat> not on grandma's random bulge, um, that happens to be a colostomy bag or whatever. They just randomly pick you out because you look different. You know, they, they do the kind of screening that's really invasive and really terrible. Um, but it works. This is just more security theater. It's yeah. pointless. It's useless. And it's security theater. And it's what I've come to expect from the TSA after their assault on that poor girl with the brain injury last week, which just, you know, not brain injury. I mean, she's, Almost deaf. She's almost blind. Um, yeah, she just had surgery. She yeah. just had brain surgery. Yeah. And they just... Beat the crap out of her, her, basically. Beat yes. the hell up. You know, and the, the fact that her family is suing for so little just makes me sick. They should be suing the TSA for every penny they can get out of them. And I know that comes from taxpayers, and that sucks. And I'm sorry, but that, that girl's going to have problems for the rest of her life, you know, more than that but because of that as well yeah. um okay so i guess you should think twice before you file an open records request <laughs> <laughs> judge responds to open records request by having requester indicted and arrested from the foi to jail foi directly to jail do not pass go department We've seen government officials do some pretty questionable things to avoid turning over documents to FOIA requesters. The most common method is to just stick requesters with a bill they can't pay. Stonewalling is popular too, so much so that the federal government sends out still interested notices to people whose requests have been backburnered for years. More rarely, officials will race requesters to the courthouse hoping to secure a judgment in their favor, stating that they've already complied with an FOIA request, even when they've done nothing but withhold and redact. Stripped of all the legal wrangling, this is basically the government suing individuals for asking for documents, forcing taxpayers to go out of pocket if they hope to counter the official assertions. But one thing we haven't seen is a government official securing a grand jury indictment against open records requesters for making open records requests. A North Georgia newspaper publisher was indicted on a felony charge and jailed overnight last week for filing an open records request. 
fan-focused publisher, Mark Tom Thomason, along with his attorney, Russell Stock Stuckey, were arrested on Friday and charged with attempted identity fraud and identity theft. Um, Thomason was also accused of making a false statement in his records request. The pair had been going after local judge Brenda Weaver and other court staff for some time. Tracing back to her predecessors, former Judge Roger Bailey's use of a racial slur in the courtroom. The slur was attached to a defendant's name, and the slur was reported by the district attorney and court deputies. Thomason required a, acquired a copy of the transcript only to find the repeated use of the slur by court deputies had been removed. He asked for the audio recording of the hearing and was rejected. This led to an article by Thomason in which he noted the missing slurs and presumably questioned the court stenographer's skills slash honesty. The court stenographer sued Thomason for defamation, seeking $1.6 million in damages. The suit was dropped when it became clear that Thomason, like many journalists, is judgment-proof, i.e. there's no way he had anything close to $1.6 million laying around. The case was closed by a judge who determined Thomason had no proof the transcript was inaccurate. The court stenographer then filed a motion to recover legal fees, despite the fact that then-Judge Bradley had already cut her a check for $16,000 to reimburse her for her legal course. That led to the current run of subpoenas and records requests in which Thomason hoped to show a judge that the stenographer had already recovered her legal fees. Judge Weaver's response to this lawful dig for pertinent records was to work in concert with the district attorney to bring charges against the pair claiming ridiculously that Thomason would use the banking information on those checks for himself. Weaver's accusations, pushed past a grand jury by District Attorney Allison Sobey, are exactly that. She's accusing Thomason of seeking to take funds from Weaver's bank account. According to count one of the indictment, Thomason's subpoena, which sought front-back copies of checks issued from the account was nothing more than a failed attempt at identity fraud with intent to unlawfully appropriate resources of said victim contrary to the laws of this state. The next count is just charge stacking, attempt to commit identity fraud. The third, however, seeks to make the filing of a public records request a criminal act. When the accused requested documents pursuant to the Open Records Act to Robert P. Jones, chairman of the Pickens County Board of Commissioners, and specifically requested the actual cleared checks front back that Pickens County had written to Judge Brenda Weaver and Judge Ro Roger Bradley for Pickens County's portion of the quarterly operating and account expenses for the judges from the years 2013, 2014, and 2015, and further stated after reviewing only the checks written on behalf of Fannin County for the 2015 year and finding that, according to several banks, some of the checks appear to not have been deposited but cashed illegally, knowing the same to contain a false and fictitious representation. In short, Judge Weaver claims the requesters lied on their request, which is apparently against the law, somehow. While the statute does forbid use of false statements in documents submitted to officials, there's no indication it was meant to cover allegedly inaccurate assertions made in open records request. On top of that, the quota request makes it clear that the assertion of illegality was made by several banks, not the requesters themselves. It could be that Judge Weaver is simply trying to shield courtroom employees from what she apparently views as harassing behavior, 
but the decision to handle the situation with a grand jury indictment rather than litigating the open records request itself definitely gives the situation the appearance of a concerted cover-up. The subpoenas may be more legally questionable, but the application of this statute to an open records request looks like someone with a keen interest in keeping requested documents out of the hands of the journalists seeking them. Ah, power crazy <sighs> judges. Uh, Do you think they've all been watching Hand of God? Yeah. <laughs> or something. <laughs> or something. As It's ridiculous. I've never seen somebody go to jail for that before. Ever. Ever, 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 ever. I it's don't the know fact why... that, as stated, it was actually the banks that made the dodgy statements, not yeah. the journalist and his lawyer. Yes. That's the one that got me. The journalist and his lawyer got arrested. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah. Uh, uh, that's a set of judges that need to not be judges anymore. Well, you know, were it that simple. Let's overreact. That seems <laughs> to be the new thing. Yeah. Uh, overreact is an understatement. Uh, you're starting to see that a lot. And uh, speaking of government, this story is from Spain. Two Spanish workers fired after 15 years of absence union to launch legal appeal against dismissals. Two Spanish council workers have been fired after the local town hall discovered they had been absent for up to 15 years. And despite continuing to collect their wages from the Juarez de la Fontera Authority in Andalusia, southern Spain, a driver and a gardener could have been skipping since the turn of the millennium. Concerns were initially raised among human resources officials after it was found the pair had collected their pay but had not worked from January 15, January 2015 until May 31, 2016. Further investigation of records revealed neither had done a day's work in 15 years. The council said in a statement, two representatives of the General Confederation of Labor Union have gone years without coming to work. According to a written statement by the men themselves, the situation could date back 15 years. The GCT union, which both men are members of, said the employees were legitimately taking their accumulated days off as part of a tacit agreement with the council. The council said this was insufficient reason to allow them to avoid work for the rest of the year, which it said was his intention. Juan Gonzalez, a representative of GCT, denied claims by the council about the men's conduct and said the union will launch a legal appeal against the dismissals. Investigators also found a number of the town's local police force working less than inspected. In 2015, one policeman worked for 96 days, another for 66 days, and a third for 47 days. The employees claimed they were attending meetings, but investigators found these events never took place, according to the municipal government statement. It added, in some cases, it is curious that they claim to have had these meetings on public holidays, obviously without them taking place at all. The government again confirms its decision to end the irregular labor situations that have been happening for some time within the breast of town hall. Earlier this year, Spanish civil servant Juan Garcia was fined 27,000 euro by a court in Cadiz after skipping work for six years. His absence was noticed only when he was due to collect an award for long service. Yep. Spain. Yeah. Well, the country I mean, who can't even have a government anyway, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, when there is no, I guess when there's no one to be accountable to, eh, what does it matter? 
but yeah, no. um, <clears throat> it's not just Spain, yeah, Portugal, Greece, mm -hmm. several other European countries have this problem. Um, <laughs> I have a friend who worked for a private comp a private um, airport, basically in Germany. Right. And he was their health and safety officer. And he said, there's one guy who worked there. Well, he said worked there. <laughs> the guy's job no longer existed. Right. But they couldn't sack him because of some, something in his contract. Right. But to fulfill the contract, the guy used to come in every morning and sit in the staff room and read his newspaper, have a cup of coffee and a sandwich, and then go home again. <laughs> God. Still getting well, full pay. And isn't that lovely? As long as he attended... For a certain period, during a, every day, uh -huh. you know, five out of seven days, mm -hmm. he got his pay. That was it. <laughs> You're like, how can? Why can't I find one of these jobs? <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. I I guess government work is is the ultimate is the ultimate dream. And yeah. uh, I work with a kid who's this. I work with him, and his part time job is working with us in the grocery department, but his full-time job is working for the state. And I've got to tell you, working for the state, this kid is just, um, I don't know. He's not a big mover and shaker and he's even less so now. <laughs> so yeah, I guess working for the state is, um, is great. I don't know. I've always worked in private industry. Well, I mean, I, I worked as a, a street cleaner for a while. And, I, uh, I don't yeah, imagine I, I got, that was good. I don't no, imagine was, that was good. It was, was actually good. very good. Uh, really? Outdoors, you're walking around, getting plenty of exercise. Uh, as it happens, I don't mind the outdoors. Well, I didn't right. used to anyway. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I, I worked there for a couple of years. But, yeah, you had the older workers always used to go, oh, you shouldn't work so hard. <laughs> you're making us look bad. <laughs> Basically, yeah. That's just sad. Um, so I, used to, I did used to see my boss once a month because he used to show up just to see I was still there. In fact, <laughs> I was off sick on one occasion and he didn't realize I was off sick until <laughs> he got my sick note. <laughs> oh, um, really well-run so, local government. Yeah. Well, once you add layers of bureaucracy to something, it makes it harder to... It makes it harder to hold anyone accountable, put it that way. So you and I were talking about Pokemon Go. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. my God. Pokemon car accidents waiting to happen. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And not just that. I mean, their kids are coming in jamming up the traffic in stores. They're standing out in the middle of parking lots with their mouths hanging open, almost getting hit by cars. I'm going, this is just crazy. I will say on the air Someone's now. Someone's going to get hurt. If I am walking in the street and somebody stops to look for Pokemon, I will run them over. I, you know, I, I, I don't have a car. I, I'm a pedestrian. I think but I'm that's also fair. six foot and twenty stone, so I will cause damage when I run you over. Well, I think it's fair. I think that's fair. You know, that's Darwinism in action. And I, I don't know anything about Pokemon Go. I've just seen people standing seen there drooling, looking at stuff. the damn things yeah. um, on their phones, and I, I'm amazed by it. But if that were Nintendo, know how to make money. 
They do. Well. They're very good at that. But if that were about the worst thing that it was going to assist in in the Darwinist uh, movement mm. of Darwin Award winners to their rightful place at the front of the line, uh, I think I'd be fine with it. But there's other shady stuff going on. We, with we're just kids. we're just one of her. Um, okay. Somebody was in hospital. Right. And the only Pokemon they found was a ghost Pokemon. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now that that's that's just I don't know if it's true or not, but <laughs> Oh dear, that would be bad. Yeah. Um and uh my Facebook feed is mostly Pokemon Go. Please stop. <laughs> really? Well it's the new trendy thing. Yeah, I don't give a shit about trendy. Unfortunately, it's not a new trendy thing amongst kids. It seems like it's a new trendy thing about middle-aged people. It's yeah, really I don't. Weird. Yeah, I don't get it. Um, okay, so uh, as as a warning for people who still have functioning brain cells, uh, hackers are spreading wallware through Pokemon Go. Okay, Nintendo's new Pokemon Go augmented reality game has quickly proven to be a cultural phenomenon juicing the company's stock, but it is only available in certain countries right now, leading some players to install the game from third-party sources. Now, a malicious version of the software is poised to infect Android phones with code that provides hackers backdoor into their phones. The exploit was discovered by the security firm Proofpoint. Proofpoint researchers found a version of the Pokemon Go program that included a remote access tool, a rat, called Droidjack, which they say can give an attacker full control over a victim's phone. The malicious version of the game was uploaded to a file sharing service on July 7th, just a few days after the game's official release. Though they say they have not observed the malware in action in the wild, Proofpoint provides a few methods for the concerned players to determine if they've inadvertently downloaded a compromised version of the game. One of the major features distinguishing Android phones from iPhones is their ability to sideload files downloaded from sources outside of Google Play Store. This allows users more flexibility, but is also, as Proofpoint puts it, an extremely risky practice and part of the reason Android systems are more vulnerable to viruses and hacking than iPhones. This is also not the first problem for Pokemon Go, which exactly thanks to its immense popularity experienced significant server issues at launch, which I don't give a damn about that. I, I do give a damn that you're downloading malware that's making you less safe and me less safe. That uh, and, and while you're doing that, you're standing places blocking up it's, access for other people. Yeah. yeah, standing there drooling with your mouth open. Shut your mouth. Keep walking. Please don't do this while you're driving in your car. No, just, people are doing it driving in the I, car. I know they are. I know they are. I'm just saying. And from what I can gather from my Facebook feed, this was your favorite story of the week. Younger citizens should have more votes than those over 60. Oh, yeah. This is a good one. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, it is. This uh, comes from Land Down Under. We think one person, one vote is the hallmark of any democratic election. However, the EU referendum and the Australian election suggest that in the interest of democracy, we should grant more votes to younger citizens and fewer to older ones. Although official data is unavailable, a demographic analysis of the vote shows that throughout Britain, places with lots of older citizens voted for Brexit, while places with younger voters ticked the remain box. 
but the latter voters, not the former, will bear the brunt of Brexit. They are the ones for whom it will be harder to study or work in Europe, to make experiences overseas, and to broaden their skills. The tens of thousands of pensioners, who on the other hand voted for Brexit, will have much less to lose from leaving the EU. Is it fair that they had all, uh, some say, in such decision? Or consider the case of Australia. As we witnessed yet again on the lead up to this election, the two major parties tend to ignore the interests of young voters in favor of those older ones. Younger voters are less concerned with economic management, super, superannuation, border protection, and are interested in rising university fees, job insecurity, unaffordable housing. Not only does this disparity impact negatively on their engagement with politics, it is seriously unfair. Younger voters should rather receive more attention from the politicians because they will have to live longer with the consequences of the electoral outcome. Younger people, say under 60, should be allowed to cast more votes during elections because they have much more at stake than someone who is already retired. And older voters, say over 60, should accept that the views of the younger citizen should have priority over their own. Take the referendum for the Australian Republic. Shouldn't those who have to live under such a system for a long time be allowed more say than those who will not? Or if the decision over same-sex marriage was left to a rever referendum rather than a hollow plebiscite, shouldn't young gay people whose lives will be deeply affected by the result be allowed more votes than old retirees? Plural voting is neither undemocratic nor un-Australian. The people remain sovereign under the system since every citizen is still entitled to, and required to, <laughs> vote. However, votes are treated differently, and this should be good news to democracy. The new system doesn't rest on the hollow idea that everyone deserves the same right to vote. Rather, democracy is intrinsically linked to the Australian fair go, and the fact that Australians have the same chance to realize their plans in life. The one-person, one-vote system, however, treats people who have had their chances in life and those who haven't identically. This is not fair, and plural voting would help redress this injustice. Why drawing the line at age 60? That's just an arbitrary limit. It is indeed an arbitrary limit, exactly like the threshold for minimum voting age, which apparently no one finds objectionable. And yet, that is even more questionable, because we deny the vote to those under 18, while under plural voting, those over 60 would not be disenfranchised. The idea of plural voting is not new. The British philosopher John Stuart Mill, one of the fathers of liberalism, already defended it in the 19th century, though he wrongly focused on education rather than age, ignoring that someone with a university degree can be less politically savvy than the average Joe. But he was right to point out that democracy should consider the importance of the one-person, one-vote principle. And let's not forget that word democracy it refers to an ideal, a world where citizens persuade each other through rational exchange, where no money is involved, no power inequalities, no private interests. The world in which we live is very different from that. And the one person, one vote idea, though embedded in everyday rhetoric, does not apply to our less than ideal circumstances. Okay, I'm going to comment here and say if young people gave a fuck, they would have showed up to vote. Yeah. In mass. Yes. Older people show up to vote en masse. <clears throat> oh, right. There's a couple of things here. Right. As you know from what I said on Facebook. Yeah, Logan's run. Uh, you're not allowed to get old. Yeah. <laughs> uh, get rid of you when you get old. Um, yeah, sure. <laughs> so, right. 
in general, this is where I could get in trouble, but it's true, so screw it. In general, younger people know less about the world because they haven't lived in it for as long. So, fuck off. <laughs> put it politely. Yes, there is a problem as people get older. Uh, it's the classic problem that has been noted for a very, very long time. People start out all socialist and liberal, and as they get older, they get more conservative. That's just the way people are. Deal with it. Um, and the guy who wrote this article is a professor <laughs> at a yes. university. Mm-hmm. And yeah, fantastic hubris. He brings up John Stuart Mill, one of the greatest philosophers that's lived. I know. I And, and, that, that, and has oh, the temerity to say, oh, he was wrong on concentrating this. on that because of yeah. this. And it's like, yeah. and yeah, there's flaws in yours as well, you arrogant twat. Um, <laughs> no, and I agree. I mean, the reading about the John Stuart Mill, I mean, it stuck in my craw because I remember John Stuart Mill saying that educated people's votes should count more because hmm. they understood the issues better. In a way, I kind of understand that. Um, I literally... And also, it should be noted, John Stuart Mill, philosopher, mm-hmm. expounded these as theories. Theories. He didn't say, this is what we should do. Yes. He just went, well, maybe we could think about this mm-hmm. and think about that. Because yeah. he was a philosopher. Yes. He wasn't a lecturer at a university <laughs> spouting articles in the press. And my no, other I mean, comment on it was, <laughs> if I had been taught by this professor, I would be asking my university for a refund. Because <laughs> he's publicly promoting his personal opinion mm-hmm. as something everybody should be doing. Sure, you this know... This guy I... it's educating people. It's like, uh, <laughs> no. Literally, I have no horse in any race anymore. Yeah. Uh, I, um... I despise politics. I follow it because it is our bread and circuses, right? Um, I'm kind of waiting for that. There's when water boils, right? There's a phase you get to before the water starts boiling, right? We're in that phase now, I believe. Um, We saw it with the Brexit vote. Uh, we're seeing it with some of the rioting and things that are happening here, people shutting down highways, um, people completely overreacting to things. Um, We're starting to see what happens before the water boils. Um, What happens after the water boils is going to be really interesting, and I think young people... um, Young people are not prepared for what's coming. No. But as, as I said, yeah, young people less experienced around the world. And in my own experience, and I hang out with a lot of students who are doing degrees at university, mm-hmm. and the majority of them have the intellectual depth of thought of a brick. <laughs> And you want to give them more voting rights than older people. It's like, yeah, that just older, ain't going to work. I think older people live more, and I'm not discounting younger people. 
No, not I'm, not, I'm not discounting them either, but you shouldn't be weighting it towards them. Because, no. yeah, they, a lot of them don't even know what they want when they're younger, let alone well, I, future. I think, I think perhaps, um, you know, speaking of university students, um, maybe somebody that needs a cuddle and a good cry after hearing something that upsets them shouldn't sure. be allowed to have... Like have two or three more votes than a yeah, person if they're that rationally pissy, look yeah, at the situation. Allowed, if they're that yeah. pissy, they shouldn't be allowed to vote. Period. <laughs> I mean, I, I agree. Safe spaces. Oh God. <laughs> Do you see that there? I, I, yes. I is that any really? It's not so, as big here, but yeah. So it's not it's, a uniquely American up. thing. See, no. I thought it was a uniquely American thing. No, there's a couple of universities here been talking about it, and you're like, oh no. Really? How much more cotton wool do you want to put on people? Well, it doesn't... Okay. And he said he... something I don't agree with. I'm all upset. Yeah, it's called life. Get on with it. Right. Yeah. I want to live in a democracy, but I never want to be offended again. Yeah. You're an idiot. Um, well, that's it. I mean, the, the ability of critical thought is sadly lacking. Education is really a mess. Well, yeah, education is really a mess, but um, it's a shame Jeannie's not here because she would have been losing her shit at some point about that story. But um, well, yeah, I mean, the the, the simple <laughs> fact is, right when when people are young, yeah, what do what do most young people get up to? Uh, getting drunk and partying. Yeah, that that that's people you should be counting on to decide the future. Yeah. See, I don't know about that. See, I wasn't like that. No, no, really... not all, but the majority. Oh, I know. I'm just saying yeah. I wasn't like that. Most of the people I knew weren't like that. Uh, a lot of them were artists. And I will tell you, artists have a completely different view on the world. Um, and Sometimes uh, speaking... chemically enhanced. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, they have a completely different view about the world and, and how it should work. And it's they find out at some point that it's really hard to make a living from art. Um, and it, it disillusions them later on in life. But um, everybody starts out on their journey young and idealistic and suffering from the belief that the government cares about them and it wants to help them and be like a parent. See, that, that's, that's why I was at an advantage. I've always huh? been a cynical, sarcastic git. <laughs> so... <laughs> I did all the partying, getting drunk and all that stuff, but I was under no illusion that <laughs> it's like, I, I thought about the future, mm -hmm. uh, but unless, unless you have opportunities show up, mm -hmm. um, yeah, you kind of know what your life's going to end up like, so. <laughs> well, all you really have to do is look at your parents. You know what your yeah. life is going to be like. I mean... There's work, which for most people is just mind-numbing and horrible, unless you do something you love, and then you've taken something you love and turned it into a job, which is mind-numbing and terrible still, but at least you have some interest in it. Oh, yeah, I know uh, so many people have done that. Oh, yeah, I took a job I, in this, I really love it. And you yeah, no, you won't. Later, I want to die. Yeah, <laughs> you, won't, you won't love it. You know, you might as well do something you're not in love with, that you have, you know, you don't like. And then keep Work the things and personal you, are two separate yeah, things. You exactly. Keep the things them. you love for
for outside of work because you're going to need an escape, basically. Yeah, get a job that you don't absolutely hate, yeah. but on the, don't don't do it in something that you really love because right. it's not going to go well. <laughs> no, it, it, unless it, it's music or something like that. Well, even musicians are are forced to. I don't want to say sell out because I don't think that's the right word. Um, become more commercial than they thought they would have to be. <laughs> what do uh, you mean, like ha half of Pink Floyd are totally against all forms of music piracy, while the other half are quite happy with the money they've already got and don't really care? Oh, I mean like Metallica. Uh, Metallica suing their fans yeah. <laughs> for, for torrenting and stuff. Um, yeah, that's unreal. But uh, anyway, I, I think you should do whatever you have to do to survive and the things you love, the things you absolutely adore should be kept separate. Um, and that's only after 15, 16, so like 20 years of mind numbing retail. Um, and it's mind numbing. Oh God, I hate it. But the things and, I love, I love. And for, for, for any, I don't know if we have any, for any of the younger audience, you know, when I say younger here, I don't probably think we under have 25. Younger. I don't think we have younger. Probably here. not. <laughs> but for anyone under 25, life's going to screw you up. Deal with it. Yeah, it is. It Nothing is. is going to be exactly as you expected. No, and you're probably not going to like most of it. Um, and it's funny, too, because I know I work with people that are, you know, they're damn close to retirement age and they're bitching about the way things are at work. And I know now I, I look at them and I go, I've been here 15 years. It gets worse every year. It's not going to get better. Suck yeah. it up and deal with it. Well, this I mean, is just what you yeah. do to pay your bills. Life loves messing with you. I was having a really nice <laughs> time. And then I hit like 36. Suddenly depression, anxiety, all that kind of stuff. And it turns out I've got brain damage. Thanks, life. That, yeah. <laughs> Thanks for that. Have, you know. I don't have that, but I have. I literally. My my ex fiance, my... she was doing her PhD, uh -huh. diagnosed with le leukemia. Oh no. Yeah, she's just finished her PhD. She's waiting for the results, but it, it took her ten years. Well, no, eight years to do her PhD because obviously she had to take quite a big break in the middle to do deal with the leukemia treatments. Yes. Thankfully, I mean, mild leukemia, she's recovering. So yeah. that's that's good. That's good that you know she's got a shot to finish everything out. But I don't have depression or anxiety. Um, what I do have is after twenty years of killing myself in retail, I now have chronic pain that no one wants to treat with anything, and that's yeah, a daily thing. You're 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 in a country where even Medical drugs. Oh, you can't use them. Oh, dangerous. My, my dog my dog can get tramadol for his pain. For his arthritis pain. I can't. Okay. I'm I'm in Scotland. Scotland, yeah. Tramadol and vodka. Yeah. Used to be able, <laughs> they used to they used to do tramadol in gel capsules. Right. People and, would snort it. And people would break the gel capsules and put them in vodka. <laughs> you can imagine the result. Yeah, I, I kind of so, can. So the UK doesn't have the gel tablets anymore. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I would imagine you they don't. You only get the hard tablets. 
But yeah, I mean that's that's all my dog gets. I mean he doesn't get yeah. chunky. He gets hard tablets. Well, that's, that's one reason why they they phased out the gel tablets because mm. people discovered you could dissolve them in alcohol. <laughs> Well, and I really mean, have a nice time. So, you yeah. know, what's funny, I don't know if you've heard of, um, yeah. You used to, I used to be able to get uh, Pharmacetol with Cody from the UK. Cocodamol, yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's a lovely little practice called cold extraction. Mm-hmm. Where you separate off all the codeine molecules. Yeah. And you, <laughs> you leave the other stuff intact. Um, and that was great for chronic pain. Oh yeah, and codeine is wonderful stuff. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, and now you can't get it anymore. So you <laughs> I know, can. I'm in the right country. Yeah, Yay. screw you. <laughs> Luckily, I actually have an educational background in herbalism, so I know other things I can do and, and things I can make that will help me. But still, not as nice as codeine. No, it it's not. Ah, those are artificial opiates. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I so I was reading an article and it's not in here. I didn't put it in here because I found it kind of depressing. But it, it, we're going to talk about chronic pain. I'm going to talk about this. In Russia, um, they've decided no one has chronic pain. It's not a thing. It doesn't exist. So a lot of their cancer patients are hanging themselves and killing themselves because if you've never watched somebody dying with cancer, you've never seen somebody in pain. And, and I have. Yeah. It's pretty terrible. But their doctors can be sued for drug dealing over there for giving people prescriptions for narcotic pain medicine. And they have to travel like 12 hours by train to find a doctor willing to write a prescription for people. And we're talking yeah. little kids with cancer. We're talking adults with cancer. We're talking, you know, just people with all kinds of really just horrible crippling diseases. And it takes them 12 days sometimes to get a prescription. And then to get a refill, you have to go back to that same doctor with your empty prescription bottle showing the date. And it's really bad. And we're well, the, almost the, the headed towards things, that sort of system yeah, here. The, the bottle thing is quite common worldwide. Well, right. But mm. we're headed towards that same sort of thing here. Yeah. A lot of the prescription pain medication was moved to a different scheduling system. I mean, tramadol is now considered a narcotic. Tramadol (laughs) is not a, it's not a narcotic though. It's a muscle relaxant. It's a muscle relaxant. It's like a... Hence why mixing it with alcohol people really enjoyed. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, but I'm saying is it doesn't really act that way and yet my government is scheduling stuff this way saying, no, you're not in that much pain. No, people aren't in that much pain. Suck it up and deal with it. I don't know about you. Well, I, you, I, have have a, I, I had a friend at university who had bone cancer. Well, he's still got bone cancer. Obviously, it didn't go away. But he was on pure opium. Yeah. And I mean actual opium, not artificial. Mm-hmm. He was on purified opium tablets. Many milligrams a day. How he could still walk around and talk, I don't know. But... Yeah, um, asking him about the pain, if he didn't, if he ran out of his pills, it's right. like it's like my whole body is on fire, freezing and being electrocuted all at it's, the same time. That that was his know, description of it. Honestly, I don't understand why people aren't just, and I don't do drugs. Okay, 
I, when I take something for pain, it's just enough to knock it down to a level where I can get a couple hours of sleep. Cause otherwise I'm just up all the time. Yeah. Um, and that's fine. That's, that's normal for me, but just sometimes the pain, that's the one thing I crave the most with the pain is just sleep. Just, just a little bit, just a little bit of sleep, just so yeah. I can reset, just so I can cope. <clears throat> When I do take something for pain, I'm not having a good time. And yet the new Puritans out there are making it so I'm doing nothing but suffering. These are the same people that were behind prohibition. These are the same people that helped schedule cannabis as something that you can't get your hands on, which is really good. I'm sorry to tell you. For the fibroblasts in your bones, it's really good for bone pain. It's really good for colitis. It's really good for a lot of things. And you, yeah. you legally can't get your hands on it. You should be able to walk into a pharmacy and tell them you want this, 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 and this. And the pharmacist should be the one who says, yes, no, you don't need this because they're going to see you all the time, especially if you have chronic pain. They're probably going to see you more than your doctor. Yeah, and they're over, going to over here, the pharmacist has final yes or no on anybody getting yeah. drugs. So yeah, yeah, no, and because they I, are they are they are the pharmacokinetic experts. That's what that's what they spent well, ten yeah. years training it's, to it, do. You know, yeah. It, years ago in this country, you could walk into any pharmacy you wanted, and you could say, "I want heroin. I want codeine. I want half an ounce of marijuana." They would mix it up for you, and off you would go. They were the ones that knew if you had a problem. If society actually ran that way, where the government wasn't taking control from the doctors and the pharmacists, the people who are supposed to be in charge of your fucking health care, and putting it in the hands of these people who obviously have an ulterior motive, and I don't know what it is, except that they think we're all out there having a great time when we're just trying to dull down pain enough to live. Well, actually, I've, I've, I've got a good story that ties into... Uh, Michael Morrison chart there mm -hmm. when you know yeah you have people telling you oh just take ibuprofen bullshit and, right several things with me one ibuprofen doesn't do anything well mm -hmm. to me it acts as a mild anti-inflammatory that's it it doesn't kill pain for me at all mm -hmm. two I've got a screwed up stomach so I'm not supposed to take it anyway yeah but the closest I have come <laughs> to hitting a doctor <laughs> was my knees flared up, you know, they'd gone out of position. So I was in a lot of pain. Oh, God. Bone on, bone on bone, bone on grinding. Bone. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> and my normal doctor was on holiday. Mm -hmm. So it was what they, in the UK they call a locum. So mm -hmm. a fully trained doctor, but not familiar with you. Right. And this person assessed me and went, and I went, and she's like, oh, I'll book you in with the physiotherapist. And I'm like, well... So then I was yeah. like, oh, well, what can I do? What are you going to do about the pain? Well, it's not really treatable with painkillers. <laughs> they're like, yeah, I know that, but I'm in pain. Right. Do oh, but I'm not going to give you painkillers. Help me. So, yeah, yeah. In this case, yeah, back to the good thing about the pharmacist. I went <laughs> to my pharmacist who went, here, have these. And it was the stronger cocodamols. 
because he knew me and knew I did Cucodamol in the past for it. Yeah. And that was the you know the only thing that that dealt yeah. with the pain. And my pain tolerance is enormous. I had a broken tooth mm-hmm. years ago. I went sure. to the dentist to get it fixed. The dentist was like, oh my God, mm-hmm. are you in pain? I'm like, no. He then took his little pick and pushed on the exposed nerve. Mm-hmm. And he's like, can you feel that? I went, I can feel it, yes. And he's like, does it hurt? No. He's like, it should. (laughs) (laughs) He was pushing right on the nerve because he could see the nerve. (laughs) And my body was just blanking it out. And yet you have people going, yeah, learn to deal with the pain. It's like, oh, no, really, if I'm in pain, it's an awful lot of pain. I can demonstrate on you if you like. (laughs) Break one of their teeth and push on the nerve. See how they think. (laughs) I can deal with that. You can't. You're screaming. Yeah. It's really funny because I started doing a lot of research. Like I said, I, I actually have a background in herbal medicine. That's when I had to leave med school, I still wanted to help people, right? So uh-huh. I took what little money I could scrape together, and I went to college for herbalism, which was a horrible two-year experience, but I really did learn a lot. Um, and what... Back in those days, they were just beginning to theorize that we have a system in our bodies that causes a cascade of natural cannabinoids. So there was a study done, was it Germany or Sweden, where they took migraine sufferers and they took and they did a spinal tap and they pulled cerebrospinal fluid out of their spine. And they found these people had no cannabinoidal system in their body at all. And they found some other really interesting things. If you have migraines, you are bound to have one of three other things happen to you. If you have migraines, you are bound to have fibromyalgia. You are bound to have ulcerative colitis. You are bound to have irritable bowel syndrome. And all of those, they can't exactly prove because the science is still new and it was really new then. But they know all of these are related to the fact that something has gone wrong in that system in your body that's supposed to cascade those chemicals. It doesn't work. That's what's wrong. One of the things that's really wrong with people who have chronic pain. Yeah. So, I don't know. I mean, I get migraines, but mine are a different source for most people's migraines. But at 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 least they now have come up with an effective treatment for migraines. If you can find somewhere that has the EM gun to fire at your head, um. and nobody's nobody's firing an electromagnetic gun at my head. Oh, and by the way, it works. Oh, I'm sure it works fantastically. Resets um, your neural pathways. I'm sure it does a lovely job. It's has much like any... it's it works the same as a defibrillator works on somebody having a heart attack. Mm-hmm. It gets your instead of getting your heart back in rhythm, it gets your brain back in rhythm. Sure. Has anybody else gotten the ads on Facebook for, um, and I, I hate to ask this because it doesn't really matter, but now there's ads coming out for, try this new system that resets your brain for uh, depression, and it's an EM pulse thing like that. Yeah, don't do And that. it's for at-home use? 
that doesn't seem smart. And well, also, one, I didn't know about that because, yeah, I don't get adverts. Um. <laughs> I don't normally, but when I'm surfing Facebook mobile, uh, my ad blocker is wonky. I need to get one that works right. Um, so, yeah, I've seen that ad. The, the only ad, if it's Android, the only ad blockers at work need your phone rooted. So, yeah. Oh, I, yeah. Well. Mm. Um, Michael Morris, the GI said no bar ibuprofen, and she told her to take Tylenol for migraines. That's not really gonna work. It's this is the universal treatment for migraines that works sitting in a dark, quiet room. That's it. Oh, yeah. Or for, electromagnetic pulse to the back of the head. Um, for me, what works is finally getting to that point when you're going to vomit. <laughs> I did like have a friend who had serious migraines who. who mm -hmm. Who, who believed in whiskey. Um, basically, he drank till he passed out, and he was fine when he woke up. <laughs> Again, he was resetting his neural pathways. <laughs> neural recalibration. Yeah. Because, yeah, that's what, that's what a migraine is, is if people don't know, your synapses are firing in the wrong order. And this causes an imbalance in your brain, which shows up as pain even though your brain doesn't actually have any pain receptors in it. No, but it feels like you're breathing Your brain your is simulating pain for your pleasure, basically. Oh, lovely. Yeah. Stop it. <laughs> um, okay, so now that we got off, hey, I had a new shiny moment all on my own. <laughs> uh, so at some point during this past conversation, we talked about artists living in their own little world. Yeah. Here's a story about an artist. Artist sued for $5 million over a painting he insists he didn't paint. Okay, Peter Doig might have, might have tried LSD a few times when he was growing up in Canada during the 1970s, but he knows, he said, when a painting is or isn't his. So when Doig, whose name is, whose eerie magical landscapes have made him one of the world's most popular artists, was sent a photograph of the canvas he said he didn't recognize, he disavowed it. I said, nice painting, he recalled in an interview, not by me. The owner, a former corrections officer who said he knew Doig while working in a Canadian detention facility, said the famous painter created the work as a youthful inmate there. The suit contends that Doig is either confused or lying and that his denials blew up a plan to sell the work for millions of dollars. Doig, 57, has compelling evidence he was never near the facility, the Thunder Bay Correctional Center, about 15 hours northwest of Toronto. This case is a scam and I'm being forced to jump through hoops to prove my whereabouts over 40 years ago, he said. To Doig's surprise and the astonishment of others in the art world, a federal judge in Chicago has set the case for trial next month in a U.S. district court. Art law experts say they can't recall anything like it, certainly not for a major artist like Doig. To have to disprove that you created a work seems somehow wrong and not fair, says Amy Adler a professor at New York University Law School. The stakes are high. A Doig painting has sold for more than $25 million. Other works have routinely sold at auction for $10 million. The plaintiffs, who include the correction officer, and the art dealer, who agreed to help him sell the work, are suing the painter for at least $5 million in damages, and they want the court to declare it authentic. They have focused on what they say as a whole in Doig's teenage years in Canada when they assert he cannot fully account for where he was or what he was doing. Every artist has destroyed work, said William Zieski, the lawyer for the painting's owner and the art dealer. 
The retired corrections officer, Robert Fletcher, 62, said he bought the painting for $100 from a man named Peter Doig, spelled with an E, whom he met in 1975 in Thunder Bay, Ontario. The young man he knew was taking art classes at a local college, Lakehead University, and he was, like Doig, from Scotland. After an LSD offense sent the man to prison farm where he Fletcher worked, he said he saw the young artist create the untitled acrylic canvas of a rocky desert space. The painting is signed Pete Doig, 76. I am 100% convinced that this is the man and this is the painting I own, Fletcher said in an interview. He became the young man's parole officer and also helped him find a job through Seafarers International Union. He said he bought the painting because he feared Doig might go back to selling drugs. About five years ago, a friend noticed the painting on Fletcher's wall and said it was by a famous artist. When Fletcher pulled up a video and watched Doig speaking out of college, he said he recognized his expressions and mannerisms and now feels let down by someone he believes he helped and he also wants to be proved right. Fletcher, who lives in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, consigned it to a gallery in Chicago on the recommendation of his brother who lives there. The gallery, run by Peter Bartlow, contacted an auctioneer. A Sotheby's specialist to whom they sent an image of the picture said it was rare to see such a complete and highly resolved early painting by Doig and said it had Doig's trademark eeriness of the empty landscape, though she later said she never expected it firsthand and did not authenticate it according to court papers. Doig, however, said they are taking advantage of the similarity in two people's names to profit from a far-fetched tale. Yes, he grew up in Canada before attending art school in England, but in 1976, he was only 16 or 17 and lived in Toronto. He had never been to Thunder Bay, he said, and was never incarcerated. He denies there are similarities to his own works. I did not begin to paint on canvas until 1979. Before that, I had done some pencil and ink drawings on paper, he said in court papers. Never to this day, he said in an interview, has he used acrylic paint on canvas. If I had painted that painting when I was 16, I would admit it. Doig and his lawyers have identified the real artist, a man named Peter Edward Doig. He died in 2012, but his sister said he had attended Lakehead University, served time in Thunder Bay, and painted. I believe Mr. Fletcher is mistaken, and that he actually met my brother, Peter, who I believe did this painting, the sister, Mary Doig Brovard, said in a court declaration. The prison's former art teacher recognized a photograph of Brovard's brother as the man who had been in his class and said he had watched him paint the painting according to the teacher's affidavit. Fletcher and Barlow have no record of Doig being imprisoned in Thunder Bay, but they said that's just because he was a minor and his records were probably expunged or his paperwork was lost. Doig plans to present records, school documents, correspondence, photos, and testimony to show he said that he never attended Lakehead University and that during the months in 1975 and 76 when he is said to have created the painting, he was in Toronto working on oil rigs in Western Canada, traveling abroad. Judge Gary Feindhorn of the U.S. District Court for Northern Illinois decided in April the dispute could be resolved only at trial. But even if Fletcher wins in court, the victory could prove hollow. With the artist himself and the dealer representing him saying it's not a doig, the art market is unlikely to assign the painting much value, art experts said. Ah, the ridiculousness of the world continues. I just thought that was the worst thing I'd ever and, read. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's up to the guy who currently owns the painting to prove. Mm-hmm. When yep. when the artist says that's not mine, you have to then prove that it's his. 
But when the defence has proof of another guy with an almost identical name, apart from an E, who they have records for being the person who must have painted that painting, and the judge still wants it to go ahead to court, it's like, that right. Is, that's yeah. the weirdest thing. People need to be taken out back in an alleyway with some baseball bats and <laughs> just, oh. It's like, well, really? Basically, I think it's gonna be a waste of Judge, judge Feinerman was, is basically just passing the buck. Mm-hmm. It's like, it, there's no way that should go to trial. I agree. I, mean, I agree. No, I, I agree. It's it's ridiculous. Um, okay. Delta plane mistakenly lands at Ellsworth Air Force Base. I would love to know how this happened. A Delta flight Thursday night from Minneapolis to Rapid City mistakenly landed at Ellsworth Air Force Base instead of Rapid City Regional Airport. Flight 2845 had 130 passengers aboard, Delta said. Delta has contacted the customers of this flight and offered a gesture of apology for the inconvenience, said a written statement issued Friday by Delta. The flight's crew had been taken off duty, the statement said, while an investigation commences by the National Transportation Safety Board and Delta begins its own internal review. A spokeswoman at the Rapid City Regional declined an interview request and referred all questions to Delta. An Ellsworth spokeswoman, First Lieutenant Rachel Allison, issued a written statement. Base officials followed proper procedures to address the situation and ensure the safety of our airmen, their families, and the passengers, the statement said in part. The aircraft departed for Rapid City Regional Airport later that night. A passenger interviewed by the journal said she and her fellow passengers waited two and a half hours in the plane at Ellsworth from about 8.45 until 11.15 p.m., where they were ordered to pull down their window shades as military personnel walked through the cabin with at least one firearm and a dog. Finally, the plane took the short flight to Rapid City Regional, which is only about seven miles away as the crow flies. I wonder how that happened. Yeah, what were air traffic control doing, exactly? And <laughs> exactly. Two, yeah, the pilot. Yeah, hopefully <laughs> the pilot is no longer working for the airline. Hopefully he had a an issue or died and and i know that sounds terrible but we talked just last week about people in electric cars who just like yeah rely on the computer yeah yeah, yeah. but the, thinking the, for. the the autopilot stuff and the landing systems on modern planes would mm -hmm. not work on a military base so you wouldn't get the glide path coming up on the display and stuff like that so yeah because the military have similar systems, mm -hmm. but they're not identical to the pub, the civilian ones. So it just wouldn't have been able to use the normal... He, he, basically, he, la he didn't land using <laughs> any of the assistance methods. He can't have. That's very weird. Unless the airbase has the civilian system in its computers and can turn it on to let the aircraft land. I don't know. But why would they? Surely they'd go, this isn't this isn't an airport. Oh. <laughs> yeah. You're trying to land in the wrong place. <laughs> You'd think. You would think. I mean, God, in the UK, if a civilian airliner strays uh -huh. within a couple of miles of a military yeah. airbase, there would have been fighters either yeah. side of that plane going, where are you going? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. 
So what the oh, hell I... went on here? It's very I... concerning on many levels, because, yeah. Ex exactly. So it's not just me. It's not <laughs> yeah. just this curious little blurb of a weird thing. No, there's there's something else behind that story. It's like you, you'd think that would be, you know, most Front countries, there'd have been headline news because there'd have been fighters yeah. scrambled to intercept yeah. the plane Do as it know? came into the I mean, military base. You know? That was buried on, like, page 15 yeah. of a newspaper. And I'm looking at it and I'm going, this is really weird. Yeah. Because it shouldn't be happening. <laughs> I have never... The, I mean, yeah, planes with suspected terrorists quite often get oh, yeah. diverted to military bases with a jet fighter escort and the like. <laughs> but yeah, not just, oh, the guy ran, landed on the, the wrong airstrip. <laughs> yeah, you don't generally hear about that too much. Yeah. I so, can only I can only assume Rapid City Regional Airport. Yeah, it can't be that great an airport <laughs> if the pilot can't even find it. Well, yeah, but like you also said, what was air traffic control doing? Probably going mental at a pilot that wasn't <laughs> landing where he was supposed to. <laughs> Probably. So, um, gonna, and I didn't really want to but I, I am gonna talk about this and tell you that not only the Bahamas the United Arab Emirates and 15 other countries have also issued similar warnings so here we go Bahamas issues travel advisory to citizens traveling to the US young males asked, asked, asked wow <laughs> asked to exercise extreme caution Nassau Bahamas the Bahamas government Friday urged nationals to exercise caution if they intend on traveling to the United States following the shooting deaths of five police officers in Dallas on Thursday night. The U.S. authorities said seven other police officers were shot and wounded as a lone sniper shot at white police officers in retaliation for the deaths of black people by police officers in recent days. In a statement, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs said it had taken note of the recent tensions in some American cities over shootings of young black males by policemen. We wish to advise all Bahamans traveling to the U.S., but especially to the affected cities, to exercise appropriate caution generally. In cases, young males are asked to exercise extreme caution in affected cities in their interactions with the police. Do not be confrontational and cooperate. If there is any issue, please allow consular for the Bahamas to deal with the issues. Do not get involved in political or other demonstrations under any circumstances and avoid crowds, the Minister of Foreign Affairs said. It is said that the island, it is said as, as the island commemorates its 43rd anniversary of political independence from Britain this weekend, many Bahamans will no doubt use the opportunity to travel, in particular to destinations in the United States. While it is prudent for travelers to conduct themselves in an orderly manner at all times, in light of recent episodes involving police officers and young black men in the United States, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Immigration wishes to advise the Bahamian public to exercise due care and attention, especially when traveling to particular cities in the United States. Yeah, there's been a lot of fuss over this. But you never really I agree with the Bahamians, I'm afraid. It's like, <laughs> hey... There's lots of trouble in America at the minute. Things have kicked off. Be careful. It's not a major thing to them, for them to be saying. You know? No, it's not, but it's it's still um, weird because there was a, there was a, there, about our country, yeah, advising. Yeah, I mean, many years ago, there. many years ago now, there was a, a Scottish tourist, and uh, this resulted in 
it didn't result in the British putting out a full thing to everybody travelling to the US, but travel sites and operators were warning people, right? Because, mm -hmm. right, this guy landed in Miami, down your way, right. hire a car, and this was before all hire cars had sat navs and the like, but he got lost. So he stopped to ask for directions. Mm -hmm. Can you guess what happened next? Uh, someone played the... Uh, well, I'm assuming he got shot or he got He stabbed. got shotgunned in the chest. Yeah, yeah. died. Now, <laughs> yeah, the warning that was put out to British people after that was... Be careful when you go to the United States, and if you get lost, don't ask people around you for directions. Call nine, find a payphone, and call nine one one. Basically, because uh, yeah, because yeah. what the guy had done was a very British thing. He was lost. There was so nobody on the street. There's nobody on the street, right? Because he's in a res little residential area. So he stopped outside one of the houses and just walked up and knocked on the door. And got shot through the door. Yep. <laughs> well, I mean... Wasn't that a lovely holiday? Yeah. Uh, no. Um, no. So, yeah, it's not it's not a new thing, um, people getting no, warned about travelling to the US. It's I mean, not a new thing, but this past week has been interesting. Yeah, I've seen I, I someone... Can, I mean, I do agree I, with it. It's like, be careful. Well, it the is nut like cases are out in force at the moment, basically. Well, but there's yeah. nut cases on all sides. Yeah. Um, and and let me put it plainly, uh, I'm probably more disturbed by the robot bomb than I oh, am by yeah. anything yeah, yeah. else in the entire case. Drone uh, kill. Gen Yay. Generally, generally speaking, uh, a suspect is not supposed to be denied due process. I and I, I don't know whole thing just something's really wrong with it and now i see that our lovely president is saying that the police forces should be nationalized that that's kind of scary you know um well, because once you're i i understand what you're gonna say but I, i'm no no you, you probably don't i think okay. there should be a national standard of training and sure. and required levels of performance for the job but they shouldn't be nationalized as such. It's, I think, it's way too complex now for that to happen. Well, it might be way too complex, but it, it also, at least with the sheriffs, most of the sheriffs I know have taken a different oath Yeah. than they would take if the same kind of oath if they were being nationalized. It would be a different kind of oath, and I'm uncomfortable I'm uncomfortable all the way around. With but just yeah, I mean, as far as everything. I'm concerned, though, as I said, there should be a national sort of minimum standard of training. Well, which know, at the minute a, there isn't. No, but I mean, when a <laughs> lot of this stuff started, so yeah, when a lot of this stuff started happening, uh, I can tell you, I can look back. I, I can't find the exact episode, but Karen Carey and I talked about it. This is how long ago it was. The Supreme Court. Uh, there was a case that went all the way to the Supreme Court, and I forget the exact case, but a 
person who was trying to be a policeman was very bright man had gone to college to study law enforcement had spent pretty much his whole life he wanted to be a peace officer basically uh and he was rejected by three or four different sheriff's offices so he took them to court because he could meet all the minimum physical requirements and they said the reason they rejected him was that he was too bright right his iq was too high to work for the sheriff's department yeah and that, and that, and that in any sensible court, society that should be setting off huge alarm bells and the supreme court said you know the police can uh employ a potato if they want to enforce the law, they're not required to employ you on basis of your intelligence, which is kind of ridiculous, really, which it? is really bad. That, that's yeah. where you end up with a lot of the things I think you see now. Yeah. You, you got loads of thugs running around with mm -hmm. a God complex. You've, you've got a problem and it's not every, and yeah, I, I'm fully aware that every probably at least, Using the at least 95% of police officers in the U.S. are probably reasonably fine. Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. the 5% are really getting the headlines. They're really painting everybody with a broad brush. Oh, and, and they're the, painting the, a target. The recent on the one, the, the, the several million dollar body cams that fell off during the struggle. As people pointed out, People doing extreme sports have body cameras that don't fall <laughs> off. So th this police excuse, oh, the camera fell off, is complete shit. Well, I and mean... everyone knows it, it. Well, you know, and here's the thing. They, there is a police officer who took his sheriff's office to court because the cameras were on them all the time. So when they were going to the bathroom, the cameras were on. They were not allowed to take them off. And that is an invasion of privacy. So you've got problems any way you want uh, to monitor well, these it things. It depends on how you look at it. Because if you're a public well, servant you in a public, doing a public duty, your right of personal privacy is suspended in most Western countries, including the U.S., in a lot of cases. No, yes, and no, always on camera is not infringing on your personal rights. <laughs> they do have to make sure the personal footage, as it were, <laughs> isn't made public, but that's not the same thing. <laughs> I, I just... Because they know. had that argument over here as well, and judges were like, mm, tough, deal with it. Um, <laughs> you know, if, if, it, if, if it's an always on camera, it's an always on camera. It's up to the police to edit footage mm -hmm. afterwards to get, with supervision, they're not allowed to do it all on their own, to get <laughs> rid of the guy going to the bathroom and stuff like that. Right. And I understand that, but I, I'm just saying there's so many arguments against it for it. Um, I think, anywhere, yeah. where the, anywhere which has had the always-on cameras mm -hmm. in operation for any length of time, have noticed a drop in incidents. It's that simple. Right. So it works. And right, it catches but, out the dodgy policeman. Right, but here's the thing. 
the same could be said of closed circuit TV. The same could be said of video surveillance of people. And if you don't think you're under some kind of surveillance when you walk out your door, there's 20 or 30 really good documentaries that show footage of like one person in one city just yeah. walking. And it just picks up one city block after another, one business after another. Um, there are plenty of those documentaries you can find. Uh, they're not hard to find at all. Um, and they're good viewing so that you can understand why people are surveilled. Yeah. You're surveilled because you cannot be trusted. That is why everyone is under surveillance. That is why we live in a panopticon. Well, I mean, I've said it before. I, I live in the most surveilled country on the planet. Sure you do. That doesn't and stop 99.99% an of the time, it all works fine. <laughs> right, but what I'm saying is you don't... It doesn't stop people from doing violent, horrible shit. Which no, is but it does argument. make for some entertaining TV footage. <laughs> The best know, the one, most... the absolute best surveillance footage ever was there are some cage fighters mm -hmm. on a night out. It was a stag do, so yeah, one of them was getting married. Mm -hmm. And one of them had dressed up as a woman. So, six foot, 200 pound woman with stubble. And there's CCTV footage. Some guy decided to have a go at this. What he was thinking was a transgender for some reason <laughs> ah drink you know <clears throat> and took a swing at this guy I'm sure and really seconds later was lying on the ground bleeding unconscious because <laughs> it's like really you picked on the over six foot yeah. 200 pound guy in a dress <laughs> yeah you've had too much to drink mate well, and yeah, the CCTV footage went all around YouTube. It was hilarious. Well, all it's I like, can tell you... Yeah, you're a dick, mate. It got knocked on I, your ass. All I can tell you about CCTV footage is, yeah, some of it's entertaining. But yeah. uh, you really want some entertaining television? Japanese TV actually oh, has a show called Ow My Nuts. Yeah. Japanese yes. TV is, is the world leader in... Mm -hmm. What the fuck? Yeah, it, it, it is what the... It, it should be called What the Fuck Television. Because uh, that stuff is unbelievable. They kind of strap a guy down to a board and he's wearing like a Speedo. And this mechanical hand comes up and just smacks him in the crotch over and over and over and over again. Um, and I guess that's a test of manliness there. Or yeah. um, birth control. I can't tell. Well, you look up the old endurance shows. <laughs> They're horrific. Uh, Although the funniest, I can't remember the name of the show, but the funniest Japanese bit of footage I remember seeing, I think mm -hmm. it was Endurance, I think. But they're down to the last three contestants. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, the rest have almost died. Um, <laughs> but this one was, for, this was a psychological one, mm -hmm. right? So they showed this, uh, showed the people, there's this line of cages mm -hmm. with big cats in them. <laughs> and they had a little trolley on rails that ran underneath the cages, and the cages had holes in. Mm -hmm. And they put a dummy on the little trolley with a big slab of meat on the <coughs> on its chest. Jesus. And they ran the trolley with the three guys watching underneath the cages. And the first one was like a jaguar or something, and it puts its paw out and claws the meat a little bit. Mm -hmm. 
going along the lion, it does the same. Uh, next cage, tiger. The tiger reaches its paws out, grabs the meat, snaps the dummy in half and pulls it through the hole. And then the guys are told, yeah, now it's your turn. You've got to lie on the trolley with a bit of meat on, on your chest and go underneath the cages. Uh, yeah, no no one stayed on the trolley long enough to get to the tiger. I <laughs> can imagine you wouldn't. Okay, so... Another, that was are, a good shiny moment there, but yeah. I, Japanese TV, yeah, oh, insane. Japanese TV is... They did another oh. one where they, they went to Egypt and put the contestants into sealed Perspex boxes it, it, at midday. Last one to leave wins. Didn't have any. They didn't have anything to drink or anything. They're just stuck in these perspex boxes, little perspex pyramids, as it happens. Sitting there in the desert. Last one not to die wins. That's what it's, that's endurance. Yeah. Uh yeah no, <laughs> you know just no. Okay, so I said we were going to talk about. You remember last week when we talked about the president of the Philippines and his statements, which were oh, actually yeah, crazy fucking ranting. worse than yeah. Trump's? Yeah. Okay, so he's sworn in. Guess what happens? Nine were killed in Philippine war on drugs. Nine people were killed overnight in the Philippines, authorities said Saturday, as police and suspected drug vigilantes pushed ahead with President Robert. Rodrigo Duarte's controversial war on crime. Duarte won the May 9th election by a landslide, largely on a pledge to kill tens of thousands of drug dealers and other criminals, and has urged the police, civilians, and even insurgents to help in the killings. More than 100 suspects have been killed in the seven weeks since Duarte's election. One pre-dawn raid in the town of Mathlam, about 900 kilometers south of Manila, left eight drug personalities dead on Saturday, including a woman, regional police spokesman, Superintendent Romeo Galgo told reporters. One other person was arrested on suspicion of drug offenses, Galgo said, adding that three pistols and four grenades were found on the dead suspects. In Manila, police say they found an unidentified dead man, his entire head wrapped in tape, on a poorly lit road on Friday, his torso was covered in a cardboard sign reading, I am a pusher. Civil rights campaigners, including two legislators on Fridays, called for an inquiry into recent police operations amid concerns that at least some of the dead suspects could have similarly been executed by lawmen. Police insisted they have operated within the boundaries of the law in killing 103 suspects between May 10th and July 7th. The Philippine Daily Inquirer has been compiling its own kill list of suspected criminals. It showed 119 victims of suspected summary killings up until July 7th, including 13 unidentified ones since the election of the foul-mouthed former Davao City mayor known as the Punisher. Lovely. And yet, yeah, <clears throat> when the pushback happens, yeah, he's not going to enjoy it. Uh, no. So yeah, when, when when the drug gangs just start killing any policeman who comes anywhere near them, yeah, yeah it's going to be a civil war in the Philippines again. Well, I think a lot of countries are headed for that, though, and, and I'll get to that. that that's going to be the last thing I read. Um, okay, so y'all know that sharing your network Netflix password is now federal crime. 
Not um, for me. One, no, I don't no. have Netflix, and two, I'm I'm in the wrong country. Oh, shame. A federal court in California has ruled that sharing your password for Netflix, HBO Go, and other streaming accounts is a violation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. According to Fusion Net, the opinion was rendered during the United States for Nozzle, a trial, a case where a former employee of a firm was using the password of another employee who was still working at the company to download information for use at his new job. Nozzle was charged with hacking in 2008 under the CFAA Act. The decision means that Americans are violating federal law when they share their Netflix, HBO Go, Hulu, or any other account's password, according to Motherboard.com. Circuit Judge Stephen Reinhart wrote in a dissent of the verdict, It loses sight of the anti-hacking purpose of the CFAA, and despite our warning, threatens to criminalize all sorts of innocuous conduct engaged in daily by ordinary citizens. However, Circuit Judge Margaret M. McCowan says the verdict was more about authorization, more in line with Nozzle's case rather than Americans sharing passwords. But the circumstances here, former employees whose computer access was categorically revoked and who surreptitiously accessed data by the former employee, bears little resemblance to asking a spouse to log into an email account to print a boarding pass, the judge wrote in a majority opinion. So, yeah, it, it all comes down to, like we talked about earlier with Alex and, and what's been going on yeah. in what well, at least here, at least some of the judges did write dissents, right. which is what, good. Yeah. What you intend and what happens are two entirely different things, and it would yeah. be nice if the law could wrap their fucking head around that. Well, luckily, uh, as far as I understand it, because it was only a majority opinion, and there were dissents lodged in it, mm-hmm. it could, it, it, it may well get overturned at some point quite easily because yeah mm-hmm. okay <laughs> been different if all the judges had agreed that would have been horrendous um it's bad enough that it's actually out there it's bad enough that this this is out there and it can be interpreted in such a variety of ways and yeah the fbi much, will be loving that oh they will but much like everything else in the rest of our lives not only don't the politicians understand the technology, neither do the freaking judges, apparently. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so I said we talk about what Hunnins are. Yay! Mm-hmm. Uh, I hope you're still not using Tor. <laughs> okay. Researchers discover Tor nodes designed to spy on hidden services, which it doesn't sound bad, but it is bad. Two researchers have discovered over 100 Tor nodes that are spying on hidden services. Corey Doctrow explains. These nodes, ordinary nodes, not exit nodes, sorted through all the traffic that passed through them, looking for anything bound for hidden service, which allowed them to discover hidden services that had not been advertised. These nodes then attacked the hidden services by making connections to them and trying common exploits against the server software running on them, seeking to compromise and take them over. The researchers used Honeypot Onion servers to find the spying computers. These Honeypots were Onion sites that the researchers set up in their own lab and then connected to repeatedly over the Tor network, thus sending many Tor nodes with the information of the Hunyan's existence. They didn't advertise the Hunyan's existence to any other way, and there was nothing of interest at these sites. And so when the sites logged on t- logged new connections, the researchers could infer that they were being contacted by a system that had spied on one of their Tor network circuits. 
The attack was already understood as a theoretical problem for the Tor project, which had recently undertaken a researching of the hidden service system that would prevent it from taking place. No one knows who's running the spying nodes. Give you three guesses. They could be run by criminals, governments, private suppliers of info war weapons to governments, independent researchers, or other scholars. Though scholarly research would not normally include attempts to hack the servers once they were discovered. The Tor project is working on redesigning the system to block this attack. And um, that was from Shiner on security. Yeah. Really great blog if you are at all interested in computer security and stuff. But if you really are interested in the more in-depth story, uh, there's, I put the story in chat from Vice, which is also really interesting reading. So now but yeah, it, it, it's, it's the fault of that, 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 uh, one North Korean guy with a computer again. It must be, yeah. <laughs> sure, it's it's only ever Nobody one guy. Nobody else. It's, it's, it's only ever one it's guy. It's North Korea's fault. It's only ever one guy. Yeah, it's yeah, it's just. He said the hamster running around the wheel, producing <laughs> loads and loads of electricity, just so you can. You know, tour. do you know it's what? Really in no way would be the CIA or FBI. <laughs> right, because they don't do things like that. They care about us. Honest. Yellow cake. Um. Okay. Where was I? Well, I might read that one last then. Um, there's a little bit more tonight. And if we hadn't have all gone off, this wouldn't have happened. Um, so the show's going to run a little long. Um, I'm definitely sure everybody wants to hear this one, though, because it's actually quite interesting. Why the world is rebelling against experts. An unconventional, sometimes incoherent resistance arises to elites who keep explaining why changes that hurt the middle class are actually for its own good. The Great Rebellion is on, and where it leads, nobody knows. Its expressions range from Brexit to the Trump phenomenon and includes neo-nationalist and unconventional insurgent movements around the world. It shares no single leader, party, or ideology. Its very incoherence, combined with the blindness of its elite opposition, has made it hard for the establishment parties across what's left of the democratic world to contain it. What holds the rebels together is a single idea, the rejection of the neoliberal crony capitalist order that has arisen since the fall of the Soviet Union. For two decades, this new ruling class could boost great success, raising living standards, limited welfare, rapid technological change, and an optimism about the future spread of liberal democracy. Now that's all fading or failing. Living standards are stagnating. Vicious wars raging, poverty-stricken migrants pouring across borders, and class chasms growing. Amidst this, the crony capitalists and their bureaucratic allies have only grown more arrogant and demanding. But the failures of those who occupy what Lenin called the commanding heights are oblivious to most of the citizens on whose behalf they claim to speak and act. The Great Rebellion draws on five disparate and sometimes contradictory causes that find common ground in frustration with the steady bureaucratic erosion of democratic self-governance, class resentment, racial concerns, geographic disparities, nationalism, and cultural identity. Each of these strains appeals to different constituencies, but together they're creating a political Molotov cocktail, class conflict. The Brexit vote reflected the class aspect of the rebellion. The London Times post-election analysis notes socialist author James Hetfield found the upper classes 57% for Remain, the upper middle class fairly divided, while everyone below them went roughly two-thirds for leave. It doesn't get much plainer than that. 
This dissent reflects the consequences of globalization celebrated by the elites in both parties. Britain's industrial workforce, once the wonder of the world, is half as large as it was just two decades ago. The social status of the British worker, even among labor grandees who pay them lip service, has been greatly diminished, notes scholar Dick Hobbs, himself a product of the blue-collar East London. There are parts of London, he writes, where the pubs are the only economy. As labor has struggled, writes Hetfield, the Labour Party became more distant, metropolitan, and elitist. It sought to rewrite the party's policy to mirror its own concerns and to diminish working people's aspirations for social de democratic reform in their favor. A similar scenario has emerged here in America, where corporations, especially those making consumer goods, have grown fat on access to Chinese, Mexican, and other foreign labor. Like their British counterparts, the U.S. working class is falling into social chaos, with declining marriage and church attendance rates, growing drug addiction, poor school performance, and even declining life expectancy. Even during the primary campaign, as both Sanders and Trump rallied against globalization, United Technologies saw fit to announce the movement of a large plant from Indianapolis, where about 1,500 jobs were lost to Monterey. And as much as the leave wave crested in just those parts of the UK, where trade with Europe is highest, so is Trump's support highest in the southern states that now dominate what remains of Americans' manufacturing, race, and ethnicity. Ethnic minorities and immigrants have now become core constituents of progressive parties in many countries, the Socialists in France, the British Labour Party, and the Democratic Party here in America. In Britain, it never occurred to party leaders that most new jobs created during the Blair and Brown regimes went to newcomers. One can admire the pluck of the Polish plumbers, Litvian barmaids, Greek waitress, waitresses and waiters, French technicians, and still note that many of these jobs could have gone to native-born British. This includes the children of the non-white Commonwealth immigrants who are now part of the country's national culture. The parallels in America, a much larger, richer, and more diverse country, are striking. Silicon Valley and corporate America loves to bring in glorified indentured servants from abroad, earning the assent of Hillary Clinton and the corporate shill wing of the GOP. Only Trump and Sanders have attacked this program, which has cost even trained American workers their jobs. As tends to occur when race and ethnicity intrude, ugliness here seeps into the Great Rebellion. Trump has consciously and irresponsibly stroked ethnic resentment tied to immigration, anti-EU Continental Europeans, notably in Eastern Europe, but also in France's Marine Le Pen, often outdo our TV billionaires' provocations. Geographic disparities. The Brexit vote also revealed the chasm between metropolitan core and the rest of the country. The urban cities of London, Manchester, and Liverpool all voted Remain. Central London has benefited from being where the super-rich park their money. The devastation of the industrial economy on the periphery has hardly touched the posh presence in the premier global city. In contrast, the more distant, often working-class suburbs of London and other cities voted to leave. Small towns followed suit. The Brexit vote, suggests analyst Aaron Wren, demonstrated that arrogant urbanites, seeing themselves as the exclusive centers of all civilization, ignore those who live outside the glamour zone at their own peril. Similar voting patterns can be seen in the U.S. The countryside, except for retirement havens of the rich, has gone to the way of the right. The suburbs are tilting that way and can become more rebellious as aggressive, disparate impact 
policies force communities to reshape themselves to meet HUD social engineering standards. For example, if they are too middle class or too white, even if there's no proof of actual discrimination. Needless to say, such policies could enhance the geographic base of the Great Rebellion, including among middle class minorities who are now responsible for much of our current suburban growth. Already the small towns and outer suburbs have signed up with Trump. If he can make it clear the threat to suburbia from the planners, he could, despite his boorish ugliness, win these areas and the election. Nationalism and cultural identity. Nationalism gets a bad rap in Europe for historically sound reasons. Yet these national cultures have also produced much of the world's great literature and music and the world's most beautiful cities. Yet in contemporary Europe, these national cultures are diminishing. Instead, the crony capitalist regime gives us Rumkulka's repetitious generic city, often as stultifying as the most mindless suburban mall. Not just buildings, but historic values are also being undermined, as universities and even grade schools seek to replace cherished values with postmodernist, politically correct formulations. English students at Yale protest having to read Chaucer, Shakespeare, or Milton, the foundation writers of the world's common language, whose greatest sin it appears was to be both English and male. Of course, cultural and political nationalism often shows an ugly side, but everyone who shouts to the British national soccer team or chants USA at the Olympics is not a fascist. They're just people who love their country. Yet academia, the shaper of the young and impressionable, now sometimes regard any positive assessment of America as the land of opportunity or even the American flag as microaggressions. Brits and Americans have much to be ashamed about in their history, but their glorious achievements remain inspirational to many who find attempts to replace them with some tortured global cynicism, centricism, foolish and counterproductive, governance and location. When Brits told pollsters why they voted to leave the EU, note James Hetfield, immigration and national identity ranked high, but democracy and self-government were at the top of the list. In contrast, classes who supported Remain, the mainstream media, academia, the legal and financial establishments, increasingly see themselves as the rightful rulers of the ignited masses be damned. This anti-EU rebellion is hardly limited to Britain. Since 2005, French, Danish, and Dutch voters have voted against closer EU ties. Hostility to the EU, as recorded by Pew, is actually stronger in many key European countries, including France than it is in Britain. And after the Brexit vote, there are already more moves for similar exit referenda in several European countries. But like Washington bureaucrats who can't be bothered to pay much attention to the views of the underlings of the heartland, the bureaucrats want to double down. Like Washington bureaucrats who, yeah, okay. Um, the German effective rulers of Europe have reacted to Brexit with talk about ways to deepen the EU, creating the basis for what some have argued would be essentially a super state. This policy approach seems about as brilliant as that of Lord North, whose response to American agitation was to further tighten London's screws. That certainly worked well. The arrogance, in part, stems from what one writer at The Atlantic has called the war on the stupid. In this formulation, those with the elite degrees, including the hegemons on Wall Street and Silicon Valley, dismiss local control as ruled by the yahoos, the progressive ideal of government by experts, sometimes seen as the technocracy, may sound good in Palo Alto or London, but often promise a dim future for the middle class. 
expert regulation, often with green goals in mind, take hard-earned gains like cars and home ownership and cheap air travel, all but out of the reach of the middle class while keeping them around for the globe-trotting elites. Where does this go? The Great Rebellion is, if nothing else, politically incoherent. Some conservatives hail it as the harbinger of the decline of progressivism. Traditional leftists hope for a return to state socialism, directed from national capitals. Racists see it as a vindication for their worldview. Libertarians hail deregulation, while others on the nationalist right embrace the authoritarian nationalism of Vladimir Putin. Yet for all its divergent views, the Great Rebellion has accomplished this. The first serious blow to the relentless ascendancy of the neoliberal crony capitalism. The rebels have put the issue of the superstate and the cause of returning power closer to the people back on the agenda. The Great Rebellion allows localities relief from overweening regulations, cities to be as urban as they want, and the periphery to choose how they wish to develop. The rebellion also allows us to move beyond enforced standards of racial balance and reparations, replacing the chaos of unenforced borders and enforced diversity with something more gradual and organic in nature. Our hope on race and ethnicity lies not in rulemaking from above, but in allowing the multiculturalism of the streets to occur, as rapidly does, in suburban schoolyards, soccer pitches, and main streets across the Western world. National cultures do not need to be annihilated, but allowed to evolve. In Texas, California, and the Southwest, Spanish phaseology, Mexican food, and music are already very mainstream. Without lectures from the White House or printing professors, African-American strains will continue to define our national culture, particularly in the South. In Europe, few object to conscious on bistro menus, falafel on the streets, and in Britain, the obligatory curry at the pub. The Great Rebellion is much more than the triumph of nativism, stupidity, and crudeness widely denounced in the mainstream media. Ethnic integration and even globalization will continue, but shaped by the wishes of the democratic peoples, not a corporate hegemon or a bureaucratic know-it-all. We can now once again aspire to be a better world, better because it will be the people, not the autocrats, have decided to make it. Yeah, in interestingly, during during the whole Brexit thing, a very surprising source of the statement, people are sick of hearing from the experts, <laughs> came out of the mouth of the conservative Michael <laughs> Gove. No. The reason why it did come out of his mouth, however, is he he's not one of the Eton crowd. So yeah, he's he's he he knows people that weren't born rich. Uh, okay, he, most of the people he knows are rich, but not as rich as the Eton boys. And yeah, it, it's well, all the vapors know. Yeah, experts. Mm -hmm. There can be a problem with experts. Well, yeah. We know be. better than you because we're <laughs> experts. It's like, really? You don't live my life. Piss <laughs> off. Actually, That's basically what it comes down to. <laughs> it does. It does. Exactly. Um, and since we're actually talking about e-cigs and vaping, I'm actually going to read a piece about e-cigs and vaping. And oh I my think God. people have actually read this. Baptist bootleggers and electronic cigarettes, a response to Professor Berman by Jonathan H. Alden. 
this was in oh god um voca conspiracy in the newspaper the food and drug administration's decision to regulate electronic cigarettes as tobacco products under federal law could do more benefit to big tobacco than to safeguard public health major cigarette manufacturers stand to benefit from regulations that both reduce the comparative advantage of electronic cigarettes and constrain competition within the e-cigarette market for this reason, it should be no surprise that the big tobacco companies, Altria and Reynolds, supported the FDA's proposal to begin such regulation. In a paper forthcoming in the Yale Journal on Regulation, Baptist Bootleggers and Electronic Cigarettes, Bruce Yandel, Andrew Morris, and Roger Miners and I placed the debate over the regulation of electronic cigarettes in the broader context of the history of tobacco regulation. The full paper will be available shortly. Can you... I'll, I'll grab it. Um, in the meantime, an early draft is available here, and I will stick that in the chat. Um, building on prior work by Morris and Yandel, showing that Big Tobacco has a long history of using regulation to suppress competition. Gee, there's a shock. We explain why it is in the interest of the big cigarette companies to suppress competition from electronic cigarettes both to prevent the loss of tobacco consumers to e-cigarettes and to make the e-cigarette market even easier for big tobacco to dominate at the expense of the smaller e-cig producers that generated this new form of competition. In short, big tobacco would like to use regulation to do for e-cigarette markets what it has already done to cigarette markets. In those efforts, big tobacco, which was the big four, then the big three, and now the big two, has often joined forces with public health groups to support greater regulation forming a bootlegger and Baptist coalition. So, for example, tobacco giant Altria joined forces with some anti-smoking groups to draft and then lobby for the Family Smoking Prevention and Tobacco Control Act. This law helped suppress competition in the cigarette markets and is the sources of the FDA's purported authority to regulate e-cigarettes, authority that both big tobacco and many anti-smoking groups encouraged the FDA to use. Professor Micah Berman of Ohio State University's Morris College of Law takes issue with our analysis, arguing we let theory get out of the facts on the ground. According to Professor Berman, there is limited evidence that economic interests, most notably big tobacco, have helped push for a regulation of electronic cigarettes and that evidence of Baptist and bootlegger support for FDA deeming rule is lacking. We disagree and we stand by our analysis. Professor Berman writes that he is not aware of any tobacco industry comments that were supportive of the FDA regulation of e-cigarettes. I suppose that is because Professor Berman did not look for them. Altria, parent company of Philip Morris and Marlboro, filed comments in support of the deeming rule and made no secret of this position, declaring its support for the deeming rule on its website. Altria's comments are accessible on both its website and in the rulemaking docket on regulations.gov. Altria was not alone. Reynolds subsidiary Reyes filed comments in support of the FDA deeming rule as well. Further, as Professor Berman notes, Reynolds called upon the FDA to ban all open system e-cigarettes and vaping products. Why? Because Reynolds manufactures the popular views e-cigarette. Should the FDA refuse to take such a drastic step, Reynolds urged it to subject e-cigarettes to the same degree of regulation as traditional cigarettes, creating a uniform regulatory environment that works to the benefit of big tobacco. 
producers of smoking cessation products such as GlaxoSmithKline, which sells nicotine gum and patches, supported the FDA's deeming rule too. This is because e-cigs compete with gum and patches and smoking cessation and reduction aids, and many smokers find e-cigs to be more effective nicotine delivery systems than gum or patches. Whether or not one thinks the FDA deeming rule is a good idea, that big tobacco companies and other economic interests supported the rule should be beyond dispute. As some public health groups supported the rule as well, the claim that tobacco bootleggers joined pro-regulatory Baptists in, produce, in pushing for greater e-cig regulation should be on dispute. Why would big tobacco support the FDA's deeming rule? Because it's, it is in their interests. Both when the deeming rule was proposed and when it was finalized, financial analysts such as Bernie Harzog at Wells Fargo judged the rule a win for big tobacco. Subjecting e-cigs to the same regulatory controls as cigarettes makes it more difficult for e-cigs to gain market share from cigarettes. It also channels advertising, promotion, and shelf space acquisition efforts into those avenues already dominated by the big producers. And big tobacco is not done. As we discuss in the paper, big tobacco stands to benefit from subjecting e-cigs to the terms of the master settlement agreement, as some legislators have proposed, and greater taxes on e-cigarettes. It's no surprise that Ronald supports e-cig taxes, despite producing a popular e-cig brand of its own. Professor Berman further argues that our work rests on the assumption that e-cigs function as a substitute for cigarettes. Yes and no. As noted above, we argue that big tobacco stands to benefit from e-cig regulation in two ways. By making e-cigs less competitive against traditional cigarettes and by making the e-cigarette market easier for big tobacco to dominate. Only the first of these claims rests on the assumption that e-cigs function as a substitute for cigarettes. Professor Berman does not even address the other. That e-cigs function as a substitute, that is, some of the demand for e-cigs comes at the expense of the demand for cigarettes, is indisputable. First, as is well documented, the majority of e-cig users are current or former tobacco users. Some use e-cigs to help quit smoking, while many use them as a replacement for some portion of their cigarette consumption. In other words, for a substantial share of the market, e-cigs function as a substitute for cigarettes. There's further evidence that regulation of e-cigarettes benefits big tobacco. For example, two recent studies have found that the adoption of measures to reduce youth access to e-cigarettes results in increased teen smoking rates. This occurs because cigarettes and e-cigarettes because this occurs because cigarettes and e-cigarettes function as substitutes for one another, at least in this portion of the market. This more flimsy gateway hypothesis may explain why youth smoker rates have dropped as youth e-cig use has increased. As a father, I'd prefer my kids use neither, but there's no question that smoking is far more dangerous than vaping. There's a lot more to take issue with in Professor Berman's post, but the above should suffice to explain why we claim that Big Tobacco has played the role of bootlegger in a Baptist and bootlegger coalition supporting greater regulation of e-cigarettes. Effect alone is not enough to demonstrate the FDA's regulations are ill-advised, but it does place the FDA's regulatory initiative in context. As noted above, our paper in the Yale Journal on Regulation will not be out until later this summer. For those interested can find an early draft. Note the paper has been updated substantially since then. I thought that was actually quite a good read. Yeah, I, I read that when it first I'm appeared. I'm sure you yeah. had. <laughs> yes. Yes. But yeah, and yeah, your immediate thing is, Professor Berman, get your head out of the bucket and actually look at what's happening in the world. 
so we can call Professor Berman Buckethead? I like yeah, possibly because he's obviously he's he's gone beyond blinkers, definitely. <laughs> um, so anyway, I I think that's it for this evening because I I don't think the show was uh, nearly half as depressing as the last couple. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I guess that's okay. The political stuff's still going to shit, so well, I'm sure the future ones will be. Yeah. Oh um. Hey, I did want to ask you something. Uh-huh. And I guess I'll do it while I'm on the air, not because I want to invite calls next week or anything, but can you run the phone lines next week? I could do, yeah. Okay, because Margot said she would be available to come on. All right. So I just she thought... She's would... Skype. <laughs> she doesn't want to... I know, and that's what I said. I'm like, I go, don't you want to use Skype? Skype's much easier and it's free. She's like, I have free long distance. She's like, am I going to have to call Vary? I'm like, no. <laughs> no, we can run the site switchboard. And I promise you, if you're not Margot calling in, we will ignore well, all uh, phone calls. I will have to run tests, but I should be able to get it to work. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so next week, uh, stay tuned for Vary and Margot and I um, and Muppets and Advert. Why do we always come here? I guess we'll never know. It's like a kind of torture to have to watch the show. Why spend hours searching for in-stock ammunition when you can use AmmoSeek.com? AmmoSeek.com is a search engine for finding ammunition, reloading components, magazines, and guns for more than 300 calibers at more than 60 online retailers. AmmoSeek.com only shows items that are in stock and readily available for shipping. You can search by caliber, grains, manufacturer, and more. The results are displayed by cost per round, so you are able to get the very best pricing on your ammunition of choice. Find ammunition at the best prices, fast. Amoseek.com. Hey guys, we'll see you next week. <laughs>